Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 96, He Made Woman for Man. I interviewed Dr. Jim Hamilton uh, for his complementarian response to the egalitarianism of Dr. Philip Payne. And I want to spend my monologue time today, if you can call it that, uh, sharing with you, refreshing your memory as to the background and context of this interview, and to give you a little bit of insight into uh, how this has impacted me personally and, and you know, sort of what my thought process has, has been. Uh, ever since I became a Christian about 10 years ago or so, uh, I just sort of assumed a complementarian position. It wasn't until, uh, you know, the past couple of years that I understood that that's the word that described it. But ever since I was a believer, I uh, understood that the Bible taught that men and women are ontologically equal, um, but that uh, in the home and in the church, men are to be in positions of authority, that, that authoritative teaching, like uh, preaching and serving as pastor, stuff like that, are uh, positions that are only, only to be held by men. Uh, I never questioned whether, uh, you know, I, I, I never thought of that as being something that called into question their the equal the equality of men and women, um, but it is what I thought the Bible taught. Uh, you know, several many months ago, um, in fact, it might have been even over a year ago, I interviewed complementarian Matt Slick. He's the founder and president of uh, the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry over at Carm dot Org. And uh, I, I gave him an opportunity to present his case for complementarianism, a case which I wholeheartedly agreed with. And then I tried to challenge him with common egalitarian uh, challenges, com common egalitarian objections to complementarianism, at least as I understood uh, the common ones to be. And this is important because... Uh, up until that point and for some time after, all of the arguments that I had ever heard uh, given by people that um, didn't think that the church was right in limiting ministerial positions to men, uh, they all seemed very weak. Uh, they all seemed, um, they, they didn't seem to ever have anything to do with what the Bible actually has to say. They always seemed to me to be very emotionally charged. They seemed to me to... Um, you know, sort of dismiss what certain passages of Scripture had to say as as being, oh, that was for that time or, or whatever. Um, and, and I never, I never really heard any kind of argument for egalitarianism that even approached something that uh, that I thought was biblically sound, uh, something that that I thought was even remotely challenging. Um, but I've got some listeners <laughs> who are egalitarians, and they uh, they recommended that I interview Dr. Philip Payne. Um, I uh, contacted Philip Payne. He said that he would be willing to do that. Uh, he sent me a copy of his book, and I read it. And uh, I'll admit that as I read through the book, I was uh, somewhat surprised. I found myself uh, challenged by uh, some of what he had written. And so when I and, and the same was true after I interviewed uh, after I interviewed him, I found that his explanations of certain texts uh, seemed to make a lot of sense. Uh, I, I found my own convictions challenged. Um, and, and what most what most impressed me was uh, 
for the most part, his arguments were uh, his case for egalitarianism was was firmly, uh, you know, firmly founded upon the biblical text, an, an, an attempted exegesis of the biblical text. Uh, it was something I'd never seen before, and it seemed that he had uh, legitimate arguments. And, and, and so, like I said, I found my convictions challenged. I, I wasn't yet convinced of egalitarianism, uh, but, but I did find myself challenged. Uh, I, I discussed some of his arguments with a few of my complementarian friends, and, and I found their responses lacking. Now, granted, it could just be that I uh, had not presented Dr. Philip Payne's um, arguments very well, and so perhaps the responses were uh, correspondingly poor. But either way, I, I didn't, it didn't seem to me as though the responses I was getting to uh, Payne's arguments were very, uh, were very compelling. So I, I really wanted to see a debate happen. Uh, Philip Payne said that he might be interested in something like that. He told me about, uh, we, we had talked about the possibility of maybe getting Wayne Grudem uh, to uh, participate in a debate with Dr. Payne. I sent out some emails. Unfortunately, Grudem couldn't do it. Uh, sent out some other emails. One of the emails that I had sent was to Bruce Ware. And I got an email back from him saying he couldn't do it, but he said that uh, a co-worker of his, uh, Dr. Jim Hamilton, um, had interacted with Payne and that I should contact him. So I did that. I, I emailed Jim, and, and immediately Jim agreed. He was he was very kind, very gracious, and he gave me some links to uh, some posts that he had written at his website where he interacted with some of Philip Payne's arguments, and uh, he, he had a short review of his book. Uh, now, unfortunately, when I ran by, uh, when I suggested to Philip Payne that Jim uh, debate him, because Jim had agreed to do it, unfortunately, Payne said that he, he really couldn't agree to doing a debate. He, he, he's not convinced that uh, that this kind of formal debate structure is one that's really conducive to uh, to objective, you know, examination of the scripture and to learning and to discovering truth. And um, you know, wh whatever, whether you agree with him or not, I, I, I want to stress that I, I don't think that he was just sort of copping out or anything like that. Uh, What's more, I, I don't know. There's some there's some people for whom debating is a talent, and others for whom it's not. And uh, and I want to be very charitable um, to Payne and not and, and assume the best. So unfortunately, Payne couldn't do it. I am I am still hoping to find somebody who can. Uh, but Jim agreed that in place of the debate, he would let me interview him. Uh, now, I read his posts, uh, and based on the limited amount of information in Jim's posts at his website, I honestly didn't expect that incredible of a response. I'm just being honest. Okay, uh, I, I was beginning to wonder if perhaps this would be like my investigation into conditionalism, uh, to conditional immortality. If you'll recall, I interviewed Edward Fudge at one point, and I found that so compelling that it moved me to the fence between uh, conditionalism and the traditional view of, of, of hell. Uh, and then when I invited Larry Dixon on, uh, who's a traditionalist, and we talked about his book, I found his responses to be very poor. Uh, I, I felt as though the conditionalist challenge had gone uh, completely uh, unresponded to, basically. You know, there, there was no challenge at all, and you know, you guys know the rest of my story as far as that is concerned. So I was beginning to worry that that might be what, what would happen here. I would interview Jim, his responses would be, uh, I would find his responses lacking, and I would find myself continuing down the road toward egalitarianism or something like that. Well, as I was interviewing Jim, I found myself increasingly uh, pleasantly surprised by what seemed to me to be very competent responses uh, to the challenges, uh, to the arguments, to the case made by Philip Payne. Now granted, I'm not, uh, I'm not immersed into the debate between complementarianism and egalitarianism. I don't, you know, I, I've only spent a limited amount of time talking to Dr. Philip Payne and reading his book, and so I wasn't able to push back uh, much 
with Jim Hamilton on his responses. Somebody like a Philip Payne or maybe some of you who, uh, of my listeners who are convinced egalitarians would have had uh, would have pushed back harder than than, than maybe I did. Um, but that said, I still I, I, f- I think that some of his responses, many of them, were very were very compelling, very challenging. And I find myself, you know, whereas I had begun to wonder if egalitarianism is true, I, I found myself uh, beginning to return toward the direction of complementarianism. Um, now I share all this with you because I want to encourage you guys after you listen to this interview. I want to encourage you to, to do more research into this topic. Uh, find good books where both positions are presented. For example, a book that was recommended to me by one of my listeners is uh, Two Views of Women in Ministry. Um, look for look for that title on Amazon, for example, and, and one, of the co- one of the co-authors is uh, Craig Keener, uh, and I'm reading through that. Uh, I would encourage you to look, for, look into, uh, to, to research this topic, but also I would encourage you um, if, if you know anybody that you think could uh, provide a very competent egalitarian response to uh, the interview that you're about to hear, um, s- send their names my way. Uh, as of right now, I've had Matt Slick on, who's a complementarianism, and then a complementarian, and then I had Dr. Philip Payne, who's an egalitarian, and now I've got Jim Hamilton back on. So that's two complementarian presentations uh, as compared to one egalitarian presentation. So I'd like to have one person, another egalitarian, back on to respond to Jim. Uh, but also, I would still love to set up a debate between a Jim Hamilton and uh, and, and an egalitarian of the uh, of the quality of Philip Payne or Craig Keener or somebody else. So send names my way if you know if you know anybody. Uh, uh, I, I would really love to set something like that up. Um, so hopefully this background doesn't you know uh, muddy the water so to speak. Hopefully uh, you'll still listen to this with somewhat of an open mind. But I really wanted to share with you the background of this and 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 sort of what my thought process has been. As of right now, I, I'm still a complementarian, and I, and like I said, I found the, the uh, responses that Jim offered that you're about to hear to be pretty compelling. Uh, but but I am finding out, I am discovering, and I hope you would agree with me that this debate is a little bit more complex than perhaps uh, some of us complementarians are aware. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Uh, we're going to move into the interview in a moment, but first I'm going to play the next promo in my rotation, which is for R.C. Sproul's Renewing Your Mind. Stay tuned. Renewing Your Mind with Dr. R.C. Sproul is next. And our Quorum Deo thought for today. Let me say to you, dear friends, that you may not want Christ. You may not want to be bothered with religious things. But dear friend, you need Christ. You know you're not perfect. You know that you're not holy. And you know that God is holy. And the biggest problem you will ever face in your existence is how to reconcile that problem. And what Christianity is all about is that righteousness has been achieved by somebody else for me and for all who put their faith in him. God provides what you need. I've said it many times and I continue to say it to this day, R.C. Sproul is one of my favorite uh, theologians and apologists and teachers and uh, you know he's been instrumental in my faith, he's been instrumental in my uh, reformed convictions, he's been instrumental in my uh, preterist convictions. 
Um, and uh, I would definitely encourage that you. Uh, I would encourage you to check out his ministry. Uh, Ligonier is what it's called. You can check them out at uh, l i g o n i e r dot org. It's Ligonier Ministries, and uh, you can sign up for a free podcast there, um, the Renewing Your Mind podcast. And I would encourage you to check that out. Uh, as well as any a number of the other resources that they make available at Ligonier.org, books and videos and uh, study guides and all sorts of things like that. So check them out, and with that, we'll go ahead and we'll move into today's interview with Jim Hamilton. Every time she thrilled me, like only a sweet woman can. I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Jim Hamilton, Associate Professor of Biblical Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and preaching pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church. Dr. Hamilton has contributed articles concerning the role of women in ministry to the Journal for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He wrote a chapter of the 2007 book, Women, Ministry, and the Gospel, Exploring New Paradigms. And he reviewed egalitarian Dr. Philip Payne's book in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. He's also written several posts at his website responding to Dr. Payne, a response he joins us today to share with me and my listeners. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Hamilton. Thanks for having me. I want to begin by getting to know a little bit about, about you and the places in which you serve, beginning with your testimony, if that's okay. Can, can you sort of share with us how it is that you came to know the Lord? Sure. The Lord was enormously merciful to me and gave me parents who love Him and serve Him and follow Jesus, and they were faithful to take us to church regularly, and so I grew up hearing the gospel and and hearing pastors call me to repentance and to place, call me to place my faith and trust in Christ Jesus. And at a relatively young age, I was seven or eight years old, I understood that I was a sinner and that Jesus had died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. I understood that I was accountable to a holy God who had made me and made the world. And I saw my need for what Christ provided, and I repented of my sins and trusted in Jesus. So I'm, I'm very thankful uh, that the Lord was pleased to to bless me with parents who believe the gospel and who uh, raised me in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, what is it that caused you to develop an interest in theology, one that would later lead to the positions that you now hold? Where did you go to receive your theological education, those kinds of things? Sure. Um, for as long as I can remember, there was this understanding, probably coming right out of that statement in Psalm 119, that um, th that statement, I've I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And I, I had this sense that if I could understand the Bible, if I could know the Bible, then I would be able to walk with the Lord and know him and please him. And I, I desired that above all things. Mm. And so I, I desperately wanted to understand the Bible. And I can remember reading the Bible and and at many points it, it being a closed book to me. And so I, I really wanted to understand how how literature works and I wanted to understand how the Bible works. And then at some point I I became exposed to a man named Tommy Nelson who taught the Bible the way that my literature professors taught the great works of literature. Hmm. Where they actually say, you know, there's an author here who intended to communicate something, and we can get at the, 
the way that he has structured his message, and we can read his words in context, and we can figure out what these guys are trying to say. And I had never heard anyone preach that way before. I'd never heard anyone explain the scriptures the way that this man Tommy Nelson could. And so basically, it was a simple question of, where did he go to seminary? <laughs> and and he went to Dallas Theological Seminary. And, and so I was drawn to DTS uh, because... In those days, they had this real focus on uh, expository preaching and on this this um, thorough exposure to the whole of of the Bible. Uh, so I went to DTS because I wanted to understand the scriptures, and and the Lord was very merciful, gave me good teachers. Uh, I learned a great deal, um, and then as I as I as it came time for me to uh, graduate, I, I had known since college that I wanted to pursue a PhD in Bible and theology, and I wanted to hopefully teach and write and, and as the opportunities arose, preach. And so I knew that I wanted to pursue a PhD, and, and there was still this burning desire to understand the whole Bible, and so Basically, I was drawn to the Ph.D. program at Southern Seminary because it was the only program that I could find that that was set up where a student could pursue both Old and New Testaments, Mm. not just one or the other. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do Old and New Testaments. And I also wanted to be in an evangelical place. I had I'd been exposed enough to biblical criticism at Dallas not, not that they were teaching biblical criticism, but um, I could see the way that if if you started from non-evangelical starting points, you were necessarily excluding parts of the Bible. Hmm. I believe the Bible. I think the Bible claims for itself to be the Word of God. And so I wanted to start from the position that the Bible is the Word of God, and I wanted to understand all of it, Old and New Testaments. And so the natural choice was an evangelical institution that uh, allowed me to cover both Old and New Testaments. And by God's grace, that's what I, I was able to do at Southern Seminary. And then uh, the Lord opened the door for me to teach at the Houston campus of Southwestern Seminary. And during my time there, a group of people desiring to plant a church um, got a hold of me, and, and the Lord used them to draw me into pastoral ministry and... In, in God's providence, I wound up both teaching at, at Southwestern Seminary in Houston and also pastoring Kenwood Baptist Church. And then, um, as a few years went by, Dr. Russell Moore, who's the dean at, here at Southern Seminary, um, in, in God's kindness, Dr. Moore appreciated some things that I was writing, particularly things that have to do with, with understanding how the New Testament is claiming fulfillment of the Old Testament. So I was starting from the Old Testament and working forward to the New in a way that would validate what you might call the apostolic hermeneutic, the way that the New Testament authors understand the Old. And Dr. Moore appreciated that and invited me to join the faculty here at Southern, which I was honored to do in the fall of 2008. So um, I, I taught in Houston from 2003, 2003 to 2008, and then I've been here in Louisville from 2008 to the present. 
I love I love hearing people say Louisville instead of uh, Louisville. Uh, I'm, I'm, so tell us why should my listeners check out Southern Baptist Theological Seminary if if they're looking for seminary training? What what sets it apart? Do you think? You know, even when I was teaching in Houston, I would tell people that Southern Seminary is the best seminary in the world. The the faculty that Dr. Moeller has assembled here is is amazing, and and honestly, I, and I, I'm not. This is not a false humility. I, I I sincerely do not know what I am doing on this. <laughs> I, I'm so impressed with my colleagues. I mean, when I when I was teaching in Houston, I, I would tell students. I mean, maybe this is <laughs> nothing against Southwestern, but in Houston, it was a it was an extension campus, and and there were only two or three of us. Maybe there were, it wound up being about seven of us who were resident full time faculty. But I would look at students and I would say, listen, if there's nothing holding you in Houston. You know, if you're if you're not here because of a church or family or or whatever, if you're free to go, you ought to go to Louisville. I mean, why wouldn't you go study New Testament with Tom Schreiner? Why wouldn't you go study Old Testament with Peter Gentry? Why wouldn't you go study systematic theology with Bruce Ware and Steve Wellam and 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 Baptist history with with Tom Nettles and Greg Wills? And I could just go on and on with all these men that I'm blessed. To, why wouldn't you study Hebrew grammar? With Russell Fuller and Dwayne Garrett, it's it's amazing the faculty that is here, and in God's kindness, we are we are like-minded, we we are in agreement with one another, we're all rowing in the same direction, and because of what Southern Seminary has been through, you know, in a lot of evangelical settings, I, I sense a kind of wannabe liberalism. There, there's a kind of desire. We wish we could be what they are. We wish <laughs> more liberal so that we could have more approval from the wider academy. And at Southern, there's a kind of been there, done that, and, mm. and seen the wasteland. You know, we, we've been down that road. We've seen where that leads. And, and, and so we, we don't, we don't want to go back there. We, we know that's not the path to life. So it, it's a great place to be. In my opinion, there, there's no better place to study, to prepare for ministry. And and I'm just really honored and grateful to be here, uh, and to be a part of what the Lord has done under Dr. Moeller's leadership. Yeah, that sounds great. That's a really good pitch. Uh, but tell us a little bit about Kenwood Baptist Church, uh, where you serve as pastor of preaching. What what what? Why might people in the area might uh, why, why might they want to visit that church? Sure. Um, as Dr. Moore approached me and invited me to come back to Southern, um, uh, my wife Jill and I had really grown to love being immersed in the ministry of a local church. And so one of my first questions was whether I would be able to continue pastoring as I was doing in Houston. And he said that he'd be fine with that as long as it did not inhibit my productivity in terms of writing, hmm. which in God's kindness, it doesn't seem to have to have done. Um, so, so when we got to Louisville, I basically looked around for the church closest to our home that did not have a pastor and wound up after a after a somewhat detailed process, but wound up at Kenwood Baptist Church, and the vote on me, I think I remember correctly, was twenty six to one. So the church had dwindled down, and they were at a place where they couldn't afford someone full time, so they needed someone bivocational, and the nature of what I do at the seminary is a perfect fit for a bivocational pastor. I mean, I'm. I'm studying the Bible all the time, which is a nice overlap with, with preaching and teaching at the church. 
And then there's also uh, a measure of flexibility in my schedule that allows me to pursue the, the kinds of things that a, an elder in a church who's shepherding a flock needs to be able to do. And the Lord has blessed us with, with growth that comes both in the form of, of conversions and in the form of, of some people from the community. And then we've also seen a vibrant group of, of seminary students who are eager to do ministry. Uh, we have a lot of young families. It's, it's just a, it's a great place. It's, the Lord has been so kind to us. What I've found is that where there's a commitment to preaching the Word of God, authenticity naturally springs up. So the Lord has blessed us with a group of people who are honest about how they're doing and about what they're struggling with. And it's wonderful to lock arms and walk together. And every Sunday we enjoy a time of fellowship over a meal after our worship service. We take the Lord's Supper during the service, then we have a meal together. So it's just a great time of fellowship. And, and it's wonderful to walk with people that you love. Yeah, that's great. Well, let, let's begin to transition then into the topic of our discussion today. Uh, you've contributed scholarly articles to, the, as I said, the Journal for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and you've written a chapter of a book on the topic of women in ministry. How is it that you became interested in and engaged in the topic of women in the ministry and at home, and what caused you to become involved in this debate between complementarianism and egalitarianism? Sure. Um, I think it's it's a concern for the truth of the scriptures that that's really what it boils down to a concern for the truth of the scriptures and then a concern for the glory of god in christ in the churches and and you know this is one of those issues that if you're going to leave the ivory tower and and enter into real ministry you're going to have to make a decision you're going to have to come down are we going to have women teach and exercise authority or not and and in my opinion, people ought to pursue the most biblical form of ministry they can pursue. So in other words, I think we ought to do what the Bible teaches. And, and so um, it, it, it's one of those issues that's forced upon you. You have to, you have to decide who are we going to baptize, who are we going to allow to partake of the Lord's Supper, and who are going to be regarded as candidates for either elders or pastors in this congregation. In addition to that, in the scholarly discussion, my mentor, my um, father in doctoral studies, Tom Schreiner, he's been very engaged in this discussion, and so I, I have deep respect for him, and, and I really resonate with his testimony, and in some ways, um, I, I, I sympathize with his testimony, and I feel the same way. And what he said was, um, you know, the, the pull of the culture would, would have us move in a more egalitarian direction. We would like to go along with the culture. Mm. You look at their arguments, and then you look at the scriptures, and I, I can say with Dr. Schreiner, we just can't go that way. We can't go that way because the Bible won't let us. And so because of that, uh, I have a concern that people will think logically and that people will make valid arguments when they, when they deal with the scriptures and that they will make sense of what the Bible says in context. And, and that just naturally leads to a, a, a sort of feeling of compulsion, a constraint to engage these issues. Yeah, yeah, I understand. 
But what about Dr. Philip Payne specifically? When I originally contacted you, contacted you to see if you'd be interested in debating or, or responding to him, you pointed me to several posts about Payne that you had written at your website, including a review of his book that you had also published in Jets. How did you originally become acquainted with Dr. Payne's work, and what spurred you to respond? Well, to be perfectly honest, I had no desire um, to read Dr. Payne's work because I did not expect... Um, to find anything in it that was new, and and I'll be frank, and, I, and you know I say this with with some disappointment and sadness, I didn't find anything new. I didn't find anything that had not already been argued by egalitarians elsewhere, mm. and and so the but the reason I wound up reading the book very carefully and writing a review was simply because I was asked to do so, and and um, you know this is one of those issues where I think if if um, if you want to follow Christ in the academy, th- this is part of the reproach of Christ. You know, this is this the whole taking on the egalitarians is not going to make anybody happy except <laughs> the the complementarians who already agree with you. And so, you know, sometimes I I, I really again I resonate with something Dr. Schreiner said. He said um, sometimes I feel that the egalitarians think they're going to win the debate just by persevering and continuing to put out more of the same old arguments and and just wear us down. Um, and so, you know, Titus says in Titus 1 that an elder has to be able to, um, to teach sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And so I, I really saw this as a responsibility and as a stewardship and as an obligation to seek to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. Okay. Well, I want to get into your specific responses to Payne's case in a moment, but but I want to first give you an opportunity to express some of the concerns that you have about the manner in which Payne responds to his critics and those of his view. In one post, for example, you express concern over his allegations of censorship and abuse of privilege on the part of editors of uh, scholarly journals. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know the way that these scholar, scholarly journals work. You 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 write a paper, you write an essay, you send it into the journal, and then the journal has an editorial board, and and the the editorial board looks at the essay and they give a thumbs up or thumbs down and they vote. And um, Payne on in 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 Man and Woman, One in Christ, he uh, alleges that Trinity Journal and that the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, both of which were under the editorship of fair-minded, wise, godly men. Trinity Journal was under the editorship of uh, Doug Moo at the time, and um, the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society was under the editorship of Andreas Kostenberger. Both of these men have stellar reputations in the academy, and pain in Man and Woman, One in Christ accuses both of them of of abuse of editorial privilege because he claims that when um, essays arguing for egalitarianism were rejected by those journals, it was not because those journals decided, well, this is a bad argument or the evidence here it doesn't warrant publication. It was because those men were, were practicing uh, censorship and abusing their privilege. And And, you know, it's one of those things where I think even if you think that has happened, it's a very serious matter to accuse brothers in Christ of, of doing that. And, and it's, and it's, 
it's not a charge to be taken lightly, and I really think that that Dr. Payne owes apologies to Doug Moo and Andreas Kostenberger uh, for 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 alleging that they have abused their their authority in this way. Uh, I think any any I mean I've sent journals, I've sent essays to journals and been rejected. You know, any any journal, any any editorial board deserves the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they have good reasons. Maybe they have a different perspective. Maybe they want to see a different line of argument. Mm. Maybe they feel that you know we've we've published enough articles that that make this case on these grounds. We don't need another one of these articles. That there are all kinds of reasons that a journal can reject uh, an essay, and I, I think it is uncalled for to allege editorial abuse of privilege and to make allegations of censorship. I'm just curious. Uh, I haven't read this part of his book. Did, did he provide any evidence that led him to believe that uh, that this was what happened, or or is it, as you say, just sort of a bald allegation? I, I think it's a bald allegation. Okay. He, he simply makes the assertion. I, if I remember correctly, I'm, I'm glancing through the book here now. Um, I, I could I could look at my posts and find it, but if I remember correctly, one of the essays was not even one that he had authored himself. Um, and and he has he has no evidence. Nobody on the uh, he doesn't cite anyone on the editorial board, you know, with info, inside information. He just makes the yeah. Here it is. It's on page one twenty, in footnote thirteen, and um, he says at the end of this footnote on May one nineteen ninety one, this fellow Curvin or Servin C E R V I N submitted his rejoinder to Trinity Journal, but its editor Douglas J Moo refused to publish it even after devoting two articles totaling 111 pages to Grudem's view and only 34 pages to Curvin's. Uh, compare similar censorship above on page 29 and below, and then he cites these other places. So, you know, he's making an assumption yeah. that that this man uh, deserves to have his stuff published, and, and that's just not the way it works. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, that makes sense. But now, in another post at your website where you talk about how egalitarianism is necessarily intolerant, and I'll include links to the posts in the show notes so listeners can check that out, uh, there, there's a particular concern that you express um, th- that Payne employs emotionally charged language to sort of slant the discussion in a direction that uh, calls to calls to people's minds the civil rights movement, subtly implying that complementarians are uh, what you call gender bigots. <laughs> can you explain that, that for us and, and what you think this emotionally charged language Language does to the debate. Sure, even you know, even in the interview that he did with you, um, he and he does this all over the place in his book, and and probably other places that he he speaks and things. He says he keeps asking this question: Dare we exclude women from preaching and teaching and exercising authority? So that word exclude, and then he and then he uses language the word discriminate. Dare we discriminate? Um, and, uh, you know, these are not direct quotes, but those are the words he uses, exclude and discriminate. And um, the, these are these are red flag, hot button words, exclude and discriminate. And, and he even so in addition to that, he even says in the conclusion of man and woman, one in Christ. And um, I'll just turn to the page here at the end of the book uh, where he says that. um um, this issue is parallel to the um, uh, the racial issue, the civil rights movement. So this is on page 463 of Man and Woman, One in Christ. He says, I pray that this book will bring about a consensus on the primary exegetical issues 
that have divided the church on women's equal status and freedom to minister. Just as the church has come to unanimity in rejecting separate but equal rights for whites and blacks, I trust that this book will help bring a truly biblical unanimity to the church in rejecting the view that God established separate but equal leadership roles for men and women in the church. So, you know, that, that makes this, this a moral issue for him. Mm. And, and it makes it an issue that's akin to uh, the civil rights movement, which, which implies that those who are opposed to him are, in fact, bigots. And we are we're discriminating and we're excluding when, in fact, if, if the Bible is teaching that only men are to teach uh, authoritatively or to teach and exercise authority over uh, mixed groups of men and women, if the Bible is teaching these hierarchical roles in the church, we're not discriminating and we're not excluding in the negative kind of way that pain is is uh, Im- implying. Mm. Yeah, I understand. I, I really think, you know, as much as I found his case compelling, and we're going to be talking about that in a little bit, not that I've yet become convinced of it or anything, as compelling as I found his case, one of the things that I do agree with you about is is this uh, this language that he uses that seems to slant the debate. I remember that, um, uh, well, I don't want to give away private communication, so I won't mention anything, but, you know, when, when we talk about uh, roles uh, of women uh, and men, where those roles are different, but we consider them to be equal, it seems as though uh, that is ruled out as a possibility from the get-go. You know what I mean? As, as being somehow inherently intolerant or bigoted, and I don't see why that uh, why that helps. I don't see how that helps the discussion. You know what I mean? Yes, I I agree. Yeah. Well, a third issue that you have with the manner in which Payne responds to critics of him and his position is what you claim to be his inability or unwillingness to interact with complementarianism as its proponents presented. In, in, in what ways do you think that Payne misrepre- misrepresents uh, the position of complementarians, and how does that impact the debate? Well, this this relates to what we were just talking about, because what what Payne does, and and you can hear it even in that quote that I just read, what he does is he asserts that he's seeking genuine equality. And and what that implies is that complementarians really aren't espousing equality. Hmm. And and he will not recognize the the nuanced position that complementarians hold. And the position that complementarians hold is that man and woman are equal in what we are as human beings before God. Ontologically speaking, in terms of what human beings essentially are, man and woman are both fully in the image of God. We are both fully human beings. What Paine won't acknowledge is that there is ontological equality and functional subordination. So, you know, an, an analogy would be to say, um, my, my, my dean at the seminary, he's, he's just as much a member of the faculty as I am at Southern Seminary, but functionally I'm subordinate to him. And, and so there's a, there's an ontological equality in terms of our, our position, in terms of our, uh, status as human beings, but there's an authority relationship. There's a, there's a hierarchy, hierarchy that, that, uh, is in, is in existence there. And, and pain views this as an untenable and nonsensical position. And so he, he, he will not deal with um, that that position he doesn't even mention it. He just alleges that that uh, complementarians are subordinationists 
when it comes to to um, our understanding of the Trinity. So complementarians will commonly make the argument that there's an analogy between the roles of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the roles of man and woman. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all three equally God. They are they are fully God. And yet the Father sends the Son. And the Son says things like, I did not come to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Hmm. And and then there's that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. I just recently wrote an essay on this passage for another book dealing with egalitarian attempts to to basically do away with the fact that the, the text says that Jesus is going to render up the kingdom to the Father and that the Son is going to be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't write that passage, <laughs> but Paul seems to be saying that there is this hierarch- there, there's this hierarchical uh, set of relationships within the Godhead where the Son is, in terms of his function, his role, subordinate to the Father. And a man named Kevin Giles has alleged that this is actually heresy that the church has rejected, but he has been shown to be um, wrong, and he has, he's been, it's been demonstrated that when he has quoted early fathers and significant figures like Augustine, he has misquoted them. Um, and, and so uh, Payne quotes Giles on the point that complementarians are actually trini- in danger of heresy on the Trinity because we, we posit this, um, and, and Giles is not a reliable source. So, so the obvious analogy is, just as Father, Son, and Spirit are equal, so also man and woman are equal, just as there are these roles and relationships between Father, Son, and Spirit, there are roles and relationships between uh, the genders, between man and woman. Mm. You know, when you started your answer, you mentioned the, the phrase genuine uh, equality, and, and it sort of reminds me about the debate, uh, the, the nature of the debate sometimes between um, those of us, I shouldn't make any assumptions about you, but those of us who, are, like me, are Reformed, and those people who are critics of Reformed theology, and, and what our critics will sometimes accuse us of is denying uh, man's genuine freedom or, or real freedom. And, yeah. uh, and you know, it totally misrepresents our view. We do believe man has real freedom. We just understand that freedom differently than perhaps they do. So, yeah, I, I don't like how this, this kind of language uh, muddies the debate. You know, and, and then speaking of roles, I'd be curious to know what you think of an analogy, something like this. Uh, I, I might ask somebody, which is a better car, uh, let's say a, a high-end luxury Mercedes-Benz, or a, uh, a NASCAR um, racer, you know, and, and the obvious answer is that, well, they're better, better for different purposes. You know, the NASCAR, if I want to go race a NASCAR race, I'm not going to take a high-end Mercedes-Benz out there. Uh, whereas if I want to enjoy a, a long commute to work and back in, in the lap of luxury, I'll probably choose the Mercedes-Benz. Right. This, this, and if the builder has designed these things for these purposes, and, and you say something like what you just said, well, I, I'm going to take the NASCAR race car out to the track, and then I'm going to, I'm going to use the Mercedes Benz for a, a, a nice date with my wife. You're not excluding, you know, the, Na- the NASCAR car or discriminating against it. You're simply, uh, in line with the creator's intention. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. All right, well, let's begin to address specific elements of Payne's case. And what I'd like to do is begin with uh, the way that he responded to the challenges that I presented with him in the second half of the interview. Uh, my reason for this is because I'll admit that I wasn't terribly persuaded by his positive case, uh, but what impressed me was what seemed at the time to me to be very plausible answers uh, to what up until then I had considered to be very strong challenges. Now, in your review of Payne's book, you address one specific of those challenges, uh, and the, pancha, the answer that Payne gives surrounding 1 Corinthians 14:34 to 35, which talks about the women are to keep silent in the churches. When I asked about him, uh, when I asked him about this, he said that both contextual and manuscript evidence leads us to. Uh, to, to believe that verses 34 and 35 are a sort of scribal interpreta- interpolation rather than Paul's original words. So how do you respond to this explanation? Well, I, I think that the problem with his explanation is that we don't have a single manuscript. We don't have a single copy of 1 Corinthians in all of the witnesses to that text that we possess, and there there are many that lacks those verses. So in other words, while there is variety in the wording of the verses, in the placement of the verses, so it's obvious that there's a textual issue here. There is universal attestation to those verses being present in the text of uh, Paul's original letter to the Corinthians. And, you know, he he didn't do this as much in... Um, the interview with you, but in, in the book, there, there are these subtle ways that he indicates that he thinks their pre- the, book, the presence of these verses in the manuscript tr- tradition, it are, it, it's actually due to basically gender bigot scribes who mm-hmm. wanted to um, restrain and hold and discriminate against and exclude women. He did, he did hit that in my interview, actually. Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, I think to, 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 to make these kinds of allegations about people's motives and, and to, to charge them with such serious crimes that they would alter the text of Holy Scripture, I, I think that's unwarranted. I think that's uncalled for. I think it's inappropriate. I think he needs to repent of it. And, and I think it's desperate, honestly. Um, he, he's desperate to find a manuscript that doesn't have 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35 to the point of inventing imaginary manuscripts that lack those verses. And so, so he'll make these uh, suggestions about, about um, how such and such manuscript or such and such exemplar, which a scribe was copying, didn't actually contain these verses. And he just has no evidence for this. Every Every manuscript we have contains those verses. Okay, but let, let's talk for a moment about this dystigmai with the long bar marking in the margin that he talked about. You know, he, he said that, that that there's many other examples, well, maybe not many, but there are several other examples of other texts in which these markings appear, which correspond to a place where there's a recognized multi-word, multi-line scribal interpola- interpolation. What, what do you, how do you respond to this this argument from the markings found in the in the margins of manuscripts that contain these verses? Sure. I would say two things. Um, first, those signs don't come with what a modern edition would provide. That is, uh, those those markings in the manuscript do not come with a kind of table of explanations that tell you what the scribes intended to communicate by these markings. 
Okay, so that's the first thing. Um, so that means that those markings could be there simply to mark out that there's awareness that there are textual issues here. And there are textual issues over those verses. In, in some manuscripts, uh, they, they come later in the passage. Um, in some manuscripts, they're in the margin. There, there are all kinds of textual issues. But, but we don't know for certain that those markings are there to say these verses are not original. These verses don't belong in the text. So then you would say it's, it's a little speculative, perhaps, or, exactly. or maybe a lot. Of spe- well, let me ask you this. Just out of, oh, go ahead. Let me say one more thing about that. So yeah. the other thing I would say is that other competent, qualified scholars, and, and I'll be the first to say that, that this is not my particular area of expertise, mm. but competent, qualified scholars have looked at the same markings and have said, actually, those markings come from uh, the, the 16th century. In other words, they're 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 not anywhere near the original hand of uh, the scribe who copied the manuscript. Mm. So 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 it seems to me that on on this point, pain is out on a really thin limb, and and it, and it you know it just gets thinner and thinner the farther he goes. Do you? Do you think that there's any uh, merit to his uh, the contextual evidence that he argues for th- that this is an interpolation? I mean, for example, he he says that the the context is all about the Corinthians, and then all of a sudden the language shifts to the churches in the plural, and he and he talks about how here here and in. Uh, uh, and in a Timothy passage, I believe it is that we're going to talk about in a moment, uh, are the only places in Paul where this word is where, where, the, where there's a verb here that's used. How, do you have any thoughts in response to these kinds of lines yes. of reasoning? Yes, my thought my thought is that that and this is going to take us into pa- the way that Payne typically makes a case from the biblical text, mm. and and what he does is not move through the passage in context and pursue a reading of the passage that would allow the the internal logic of the passage to arise naturally from the from what the text says. What he does is he sort of hovers above the text, and then he'll reach down in and he'll grab an exegetical detail, and he'll pull it out, and he'll often make assertions about what this word has to mean. And and so in the interview with you, he was constantly distinguishing between anthropos and anair. Hmm. And I think that's just not the way words work. I think all over the place... Payne is committing what's known as the word study fallacy, where where he's got these hard and fast, very strict possibilities as to what words mean, and then without regard for the context, he'll he'll pull that word out of the particular context, assert that it means what he says it means, and then act as though he's made his case when when if you come back to the passage and you actually read it in context, it makes it very difficult to sustain the reading that he has proposed. So with this 1 Corinthians 14 passage, I think if we if we begin in the context and we just work our way through the context, Paul says in, in verse 29, and I'm just reading from the ESV here, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Okay, so he's addressing a scenario where several prophets are going to speak and then uh, others who are sitting there are going to evaluate what or weigh what the prophet has asserted. Um, and then he goes on in verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. I think this indicates that as prophets are communicating, another prophet in the worship service might receive a spontaneous revelation. And if that happens, the prophet who's speaking has to give way 
to the prophet who's received the more recent, more immediate revelation. And then Paul begins to explain himself. He says in verse 31, For you can all prophesy one by one, so that I all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. So, in other words, you got to control your behavior. you you, you got to be uh, exercising self-control even as you exercise your spiritual gifts. For God is not, verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then he continues, as in all the churches of the saints. Mm. So I think what he's saying is this is the way we conduct ourselves whenever uh, congregations gather for Christian worship. Then verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches. Now, I think it's natural to say... Uh, this is an interpretation that Payne rejects, and and um, in my opinion, he's rejecting an interpretation that makes good sense in the context that fits logically in the flow of thought. So, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. And then I'm just going to read verse 35. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, I think it's natural, in view of what Paul has been saying since verse 29 about the prophets speaking, to propose that what Paul has in view is when it comes time to weigh the prophecy, one of the ways that the prophecies would be weighed would be for questions to be asked. Hmm. And, and when it comes time for that to happen, so that the women won't be perceived as exercising authority over or instruction, instructing men there to be silent at that time. And it seems to me that Paul is saying that's the way it is in all the churches. So um, when he says there in verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission, I think that's the context he's talking about. When it's time, after the prophets have given their word when it's time to weigh the prophecies. He's already said in 1 Corinthians 11 that the women can pray and prophesy in church. So I think we we, we don't have to uh, make this contradictory, as Payne suggests, and say we have to pick one or the other, uh, and therefore we have to throw out 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. I think we can read them together and allow them allow a contextual explanation to arise that fits with the flow of thought. And then that statement at the end of verse 34, as the law also says, um, Payne had some remarks about um, the law never prohibiting women from speaking. Uh, I, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think actually that Paul is alluding back to the kinds of appeals to the law that he had made in 1 Corinthians 11. So in 1 Corinthians 11, he has made these statements there about how uh, in verse um, 8, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And in verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, that's information that he gets right out of the law. He gets it right out of the pre-fall Eden setting where Eve was created from Adam for Adam. And um, Paul has done this kind of thing earlier in 1 Corinthians where he's alluded back to earlier passages from the scriptures that he's already quoted. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, for instance, when he's talking about himself and Apollos, he says in verse 6, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your brothers, for your, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. And I think there's a kind of 
agreement, a consensus among scholars, that when he says that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, he's alluding back to the passages from the scriptures that he's already quoted in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. And so I would propose that he's doing the same thing in 1 Corinthians 14, where he's saying there in verse 34, as the law also says, and he's alluding back to 1 Corinthians 11, 8, and 9, where he had given this explanation from what the law says, from what Genesis says, for his regulations about about how men and women are to conduct themselves. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually... Pretty impressed by that response. I think that's that's pretty good. I'll be interested to see what uh, what, what the egalitarian response to that is. Uh, w- one really quick question I do have for you, though, is you know part of the um, uh, part of Payne's argument had to do with this plural word churches in in verse uh, in verse thirty four. But immediately prior to that, in verse at the end of verse thirty three, is an appeal to the churches. I'm just curious. Do you know if that end of verse thirty three is part of what he claims to be an interpolation? Um, well. Um, the, the focus of the, of the uh, claim for interpolation is on verses 34 and um, 35. But I would say, again, if we, just, if we just continue with the context, you know, Paul goes on there in um, uh, verse 36 saying, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones mm. reached? And then, and then he, and then he says in verse 37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So I think what Paul is doing is he's addressing this, apparently, this abuse of spiritual gifts that's taking place in the church in Corinth. And he's saying, look, Corinth, you're not the only church that has received prophetic inspiration. Hmm. And you need to conduct yourself with these things as we do in all the churches at the end of verse 33. And then verse 36, it's not you only that the word of God came. And you're not the only ones it has reached. So again, I think if we just read the passage in context, there's a meaning that, that arises naturally if we will accept it. And so, you know, if, if people are attracted to Payne's view, my counsel is simply, please keep reading the Bible. <laughs> I think that's wise advice. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time with that. Um, there you have it, the first half of my interview with complementarian Dr. Jim Hamilton. I'm sure complementarians and egalitarians alike will be dying to hear the next half of the interview. Uh, and I'll publish that in a couple of days, and I hope you'll join me for it. Until then.